This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Just a note before starting. Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. In this episode, I will be providing an update on a story that I covered way back in episode 2. When I first started the podcast, there were two Australian cases that came to mind straight away. So episode one was about a teacher who was raped and murdered at her school by the school cleaner while she had been at the school on a weekend preparing lessons. Then in episode two, I covered the abduction and murder of a schoolboy named Daniel Morecambe, who actually lived not far from me. And so I was able to visit the spot where he was abducted from and I took a video which I put on social media and in our Facebook group so some of you may be familiar with that video. This had been the first case where a crime had been committed so close to home and yes, before this I would have said that serious crime just didn't happen where I live but sadly it did. Daniel was missing for 10 years until he was finally found and they eventually caught the killer and he is currently in prison. But while Daniel was missing for all of those years, his parents went on to create a foundation called the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, which educated children about child safety. They have a bus which they use to visit schools to talk about stranger danger. They even collaborated with the education department to create child safety curriculum, which I have taught in my own classroom. And they did all of this before he was even found. And they are very well known in my state, but also across Australia. So the perpetrator received a life sentence, but with the possibility for parole after only 20 years. And I was just watching the news recently, and I saw an update on his case. But before talking about what's happened, you will now hear some audio describing all about what happened to Daniel and how the perpetrator was caught. You will hear the perpetrator's name bleeped out, and also during a detective's undercover interview with him, I have also bleeped out what the man said. Joining me today is Kate Kiriaku, crime editor of the Courier-Mail, who covered the case of Daniel Morecambe and how his killer was finally caught in a covert police operation. Kate, talk me through the basic facts of, first of all, what happened to Daniel, and then we'll lead into how was finally caught. So Daniel was a schoolboy from the Sunshine Coast. He went missing back in 2003. He was at home with his brothers. His parents, they had gone to a work Christmas party and the boys were meant to go with them, but they had been doing some passion fruit picking at a neighbor's house. So While Bruce and Denise were away, Daniel decided to catch the bus to a local shopping centre, which he'd done by himself before quite a few times, and he didn't come back. We both want Daniel home. It's been seven days since he was last seen. It's a matter of urgency. Somebody must have seen him somewhere. It's getting desperate. We need him back. (laughs) We want Daniel back. 
Bruce and Denise came back from the Christmas party and they basically said, where's Daniel? And they thought he must just be on a later bus, you know, must be on the last bus coming back from the Sunshine Plaza. And so Denise went to meet the bus and he didn't get off it. So she was a bit concerned. She drove to the shopping centre thinking he must have missed the bus and uh, he wasn't there either. So she asked a bus driver and, you know, no one could really help them. They drove around everywhere. They drove the path that he would have walked back to their property. They eventually went to the police and the police said, oh, you know, he's probably just run into a friend or something. But in those situations, the parents know, you know, and Bruce and Denise knew. They knew their son hadn't gone off with his friends and not called them. He'd never have done that. It became pretty clear pretty quickly that it must have been an abduction. He'd been seen at the bus stop. There'd been a breakdown. He, he was waiting a while. The bus was really late. The bus that came to sort of do those pickups had been told to go express to the plaza for a certain point. So I actually drove past Daniel. There was a bus behind him that was 90 seconds behind him. So he radioed to that bus and said, there's a kid and a, and a man standing at the bus stop. Can you pick them up? And so 90 seconds later, when that bus pulled in at that stop, there was nobody there. It took a predator 90 seconds to convince a really responsible, smart kid to get into the car with him. And I, and I think that's, that's the horror of the situation and that's why Bruce and Denise have dedicated their entire lives to explaining, you know, the dangers of the world to every other kid in the country. No, my body belongs to me. It took, you know, a really long time, years, for to be um, charged and convicted and yet he was a suspect from quite early on, wasn't he? He was. So one of the first things police did, and it's something they do in in many cases like this, um, not that these cases happen very often, but it's a pretty standard thing, is that they look at uh, known child sex offenders in the area um, and they go and visit them one by one and they ask them where they were. And so a couple of detectives, uh, Dennis Martin and Ken King, found themselves knocking on door two weeks into the investigation um, he was on their list and both of these guys were CPIU detectives the child protection detectives so this was their bread and butter and you know I've, spoke, I've spoken to Dennis quite a few times about knocking on the door and he said to me there were little windmills and stuff like that little trinkets all around the front yard of his house and he said you know, if no one had told him, he would have known what kind of person lived in that house. He said it's pretty common that a pedophile will put little things in their front yard to attract children. They asked where he'd been. And this is one of the most important moments in that whole investigation in that did what he always does. He fesses up to something that he thinks they already know or he can't get out of and then lies about everything else. So he does that with everything. And in this case, they said, where were you at this time? And he said, I went to my boss's house to borrow a mulcher and I drove along this road at this time. And the reason why he admitted to that, uh, they would find out later, was because he thought he'd been caught on the traffic cameras and that's why they were there. He had a very tight alibi when you looked at it, but really he had put himself driving past the bus stop where Daniel was waiting at the exact same time that he would have been there. Throughout the whole investigation of all the persons of interest they looked at, they couldn't put anyone else so conclusively at the scene as they did with two weeks into that investigation.
So what was the point when police really began to zero in on um on Sometime later it came out through other court proceedings that he had told people that he'd actually stopped off at his drug dealer's house to buy some marijuana and the police thought, well, that's really odd because he didn't tell us that. So they went back and looked at this situation with the drug dealer. They went and spoke to her and said, where would you have been this day? And she sort of said, I spent a lot of time at, I think it was like the local RSL on the pokies. And so then they went to that place and they said, do you have a record of when people are here playing the pokies? Do, do you have like a membership card? Do people scan in? That sort of thing. And they were able to determine that the drug dealer was at the RSL playing the pokies when said that he was sitting in her lounge room having a cup of tea and buying some marijuana from her. So they disproved that alibi, which gave them a, a window where he could have abducted Daniel. At the end of the inquest, got on a plane and flew back to Perth where he was living and unbeknownst to him, there was a covert police officer sitting next to him on the plane. I was lucky enough to do an interview with that covert officer under some very strict conditions and he said that he actually ended up like a sore, sore leg and quite a sore body from that five hours because he was so repulsed by he was sort of simultaneously leaning away from him while also trying to sort of lean in and be friendly. And he said just his body was having this fight with itself because he was such a repulsive person. The COVID operative had a cover story that he was moving to Perth to sort of start fresh and that he needed help to buy sort of like an old car because they knew like to tinker around with cars. And then from there, it morphed into this covert scenario that was developed in Canada uh, called the Mr. Big Sting. It's been used all around Australia. It's been used a lot in Canada and it was successfully used in this case. I believe the WA covert section had just successfully done it and that's why it was brought to Queensland police attention when they got there and they said, well, we're doing this, we're in town, we're doing this covert job and they said oh you should try this Mr Big scenario that we've just used it in a case here it doesn't work on everybody it works on certain personality types mm -hmm. and they assessed sort of I guess remotely to see whether he was the type of person who you know would be susceptible to this sort of covert scenario and they decided that he was. They befriend him they take him you know, they build up trust. And then what kind of happens? How does it work? Police basically pretend that they are a criminal gang, a criminal organisation who kind of do a bit of everything like drug trafficking, managing sex workers, buying illegal seafood, all sorts of stuff. So there's a criminal enterprise. And to be honest, like, was in a perfect position to sort of um, fall for this, for want of a better word, because he'd obviously left Queensland, the place where he abducted and murdered you know, a young boy, and he was sort of, I guess, trying to start fresh. They had him doing everything from meeting with sex workers who were handing over their cut of the money to at one point they were meeting a bikey who they were selling guns to the bikey and was handling the guns. And he kind of felt like he was part of this, you know, this group of people who had each other's backs and they all respected each other despite their background. Didn't matter what his background was. He just said he'd been in jail before but didn't say why. But they kept saying no judgment, you know, we've all got a past, et cetera, et cetera. He, he said to one of them, this is the stuff dreams are made of. You know, this is basically it was the greatest time in his life where he felt like he had all these friends, he was making good money, he was involved in all this exciting stuff. You know, it was just... 
he was so far gone and, you know, they drummed in that this group, this organisation had quite a hierarchy uh, and he'd met various people from that hierarchy and then they said, we've got this big job coming up, that's why you've been at the airport, everyone's going to get $100,000 cut, we want to bring you in, but the big boss basically needs to talk to you. He background checks everybody to make sure that, you know, we're not going to get any sort of unwanted attention from the police. And so basically what the big boss said, Mr Big, he said, I've got some information about you. I understand you're a suspect in the abduction of a 13-year-old boy some years ago back in Queensland. I need you to tell me about that because if this comes back on you, then it's going to come back on us. And he said, no, I haven't done, I didn't do it, you know. And he said, well, that's not good enough because we're told that you did. So... I don't care if you did, it's got nothing to do with me, um, no judgment, we've all got a past, et cetera, et cetera, those lines again. But if there's any evidence that's going to link you to anything here, we need to go and clean it up. Otherwise, we're not keeping you around. And so that was the ultimatum that they gave him. You either tell us or you're out. And so he said, yep, okay, I did it. You build up a good relationship with some of the boys? And they speak very highly of you. So what do I need to fix? He drew them a map as to where he'd left Daniel's body. He went through in detail about how he'd convinced him to get into the car, about where he'd driven him, about what he'd done. And I think it's really important to put you know, on the record here too, that almost nobody believes the scenario that he came up with as to how Daniel had died. Again, he admits to what he has to admit to and then he makes the rest up. So he said, I went to molest him. He tried to run away. I grabbed him in a headlock and pulled back and accidentally killed him. So that's a version of events he gave. Bruce Morecambe in his victim impact statement said, if that's the case, then why did you take off his clothes and why was his belt pulled out of his pants? Um, they were able to recover Daniel's clothing even though so many years had passed from a creek in the area of where his body was found. So they knew that his clothes had been removed and that his belt had been taken out of his, his pants. So that's basically how they got him. It was an incredible uh, investigation. They went to incredible lengths to get his confession and then they were able to back it up with actual physical evidence from the scene where he took them. Stay where you are. Stay where you are. Police. All right, you're under the arrest for the murder of Daniel Morecambe. I think the most important thing that came out of it, other than the fact that we've got a predator off the streets and hopefully he's never released, Bruce and Denise got to bury their son. And I always like to sort of, I guess, hammer the efforts that all those covert officers went to because no one knows what they do um, because that's the nature of their job. And they go and they do horrible, horrible things, but such important work like this and they can never get the credit for it. So... Um, even though we can't know who they are, I think um, I always like to try and, you know, think about the work that they did. And I know Bruce and Denise think about the work that they did all the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible story of, um, 
you know, police commitment to, to justice and, and going to any lengths mm -hmm. to achieve it. Kate Kiriaki, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing the story of um, Daniel Morecambe and how brought to justice. So just a matter of days ago, Daniel's parents were contacted by a friend who told them that a film had been made about Daniel's case. It had already been screened at the prestigious Cannes Film Festival and was also due to be shown at the Melbourne Film Festival here in Australia. Apparently, it's not a documentary, but a fictional account which dramatises the decade-long investigation that led to the arrest of Daniel's killer. It focuses on the relationship between the undercover officer and the perpetrator. So it really only covers the sting operation, but doesn't mention Daniel's name or any details about his case. Although the filmmakers have acknowledged that it is based on Daniel's story. Now Daniel's parents have slammed the film, calling it disrespectful and calling the creators parasites who are profiting on the murder of their son. So listen here to some audio of Bruce and Denise explaining why they are outraged. Well, Bruce and Denise Morecambe have slammed a new movie inspired by their son Daniel's death. The creators approached the Morecams for approval before the pandemic, but when the family declined, the movie was made anyway. The Stranger is now set to lead the Melbourne Film Festival next month, the producers say the name of the victim is never mentioned in the film and the film does not depict any details of the murder. That hasn't stopped Bruce and Denise labelling the creators as morally corrupt and parasites. Bruce and Denise Morecambe join me now. Well, great to see you again, guys. Um, Bruce, just take us through oh, Good morning. Uh, your frustration with this film. It's so close to home. Yeah, look, we just felt that it's um, terribly insensitive to the victims, uh, not just, you know, Daniel's legacy being the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, but um, four levels, different layers of the Morecambe family. Denise's parents, obviously our, ourselves, um, Daniel's brothers, and, of course, mm. uh, our, Daniel's brothers have children themselves. So they will never know and meet the uncle... Um, being Daniel. So we find it terribly insensitive, but really the, the crux of the situation is that the movie doesn't use Daniel's name. Okay, we're happy with that. Um, but it's the promotion of the movie that identifies this is based on the story of Daniel Morecambe. Please do not use Daniel Morecambe's name in promoting a movie um, because we are very protective of that name and of course um, highly emotional and, and um, you know, we just don't think it's right. Uh, Denise, after everything that your family has gone through, um, making a movie like this, is there any benefit? Well, there's no benefit for for our family. There's no benefit for the Daniel Morkman Foundation. You know, if the movie was about um, the community, um, the community helping the foundation, uh, the community spirit, educating children on how to keep safe, you know, that would be a benefit. But the only benefit is, you know, these people are making a movie and promoting it, you know, as the... In being influenced by the manhunt of the killer of Daniel Morecambe and mm. it's just promoting themselves and they're the one that's making money and they're the one that are making a career out of it. So that's why we're really upset about this situation. Bruce, have the producers reached out again to you? Um, would you speak to them again? What would you say? 
Oh, look, we're reasonable people and easy to contact, um, of course, just through the foundation. But look, um, in quick quick answers to your question, no, there's been no communication in um, some three, three or four years. Um, and we were absolutely blindsided that this movie actually got up. Um, we only read it online on a Google alert um, that the, the feature film had been finished and was being shown at the Cannes Movie Festival um, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, here we go in August, it's being prepared for the uh, Melbourne Movie Festival. Um, we just think that um, it's, it's uh, terribly unjust, uh, a very cruel act and um, uh, serves no benefit other than perhaps building people's ego and, uh, and lining people's pocket. We just wanted to distance ourselves from the movie, both as a family and as a foundation, Daniel's legacy. Mm, completely understandable. Uh, Bruce, Denise, thanks for joining us once again. They continue by saying, the trailer and certainly the printed material about the movie is extremely distressing to Denise, myself and the extended family members. Of course, there's Daniel's school friends and there's lots and lots of layers that are all impacted by Daniel's loss. This movie does not help, that's for sure. So maybe people should consider the victims, not just their own hip pocket, when considering making a movie such as this. In some ways, it provides oxygen to Blake himself and the horrendous crime that he committed. Why are these people in it? They need to take a good hard look at themselves. Are they in it for their careers or for blood money? The actor, the cameraman, they've all made money out of the movie. But the hurtful thing is, they are using Daniel's name to promote the movie and that's what we find really disgusting. We find the making of the movie morally corrupt and cruel. There's been no communication in some three or four years. In August, it's being prepared for the Melbourne Movie Festival. We just think it's terribly unjust, a cruel act and serves no benefit other than perhaps building people's ego and lining people's pockets. If you've got any conscience at all, please don't go and watch this movie. It is a terrible tale that glorifies a horrible incident, the murder of our son. And they have also suggested that people save the cost of the movie ticket and donate that money to their foundation. So the filmmakers did the right thing and they contacted Daniel's parents, but they declined to be involved and obviously thought that that was the end of the matter. And here now is what the filmmakers had to say. It tells the story of the unknown police professionals who committed years of their lives and their mental and physical health to resolve this case and others like it. Out of our deepest respect for the family, the name of the victim is never mentioned in the film and the film does not depict any details of the murder, nor is the family represented in the film in any way. It's a fictionalised account of the undercover police operation that resulted in a successful murder prosecution. When the film was first in development, the producers approached the family to make them aware of the film. They declined to be involved. It's a decision we continue to respect. One reason we chose not to show the child or family was to make a film with a clear moral perspective. We couldn't presume to know anything of the experience of that family, but we could see that there was a story about empathy and making meaning in the wake of violence. 
not violence itself. So the film will be screened in August at Melbourne International Film Festival and here is what a spokesperson had to say. We respect and acknowledge the grief, pain and hurt that the Morecambe family have expressed about this film, but we stand by our decision to screen it. The festival believes that this film, as recognised by its inclusion in the Cannes Film Festival, is a powerful work from a respected Australian director. It provides opportunity for contemplation and discussion of challenging subject matter. The festival is a space, like many film festivals, where all kinds of cinema, including that which we may find dark or difficult, can be responsibly presented to an audience. So, as you can see, it's a very sensitive matter, and I can totally see their point. But at the end of the day, the filmmakers have the right to create whatever they want. Here is one quote that I found. It is absolutely legal for people to write unauthorised biographies, make documentaries or dramas about someone without needing their permission. You do not need permission to portray a real person in a work of art, such as a book or movie. This happens all the time. However, the work must be accurate and not run afoul of the following legal principles. Libel, invasion of privacy, defamation, misappropriation of the right of publicity, copyright infringement or breach of confidence. As the film allegedly does not mention Daniel, the family or the details of the crime, then the filmmakers have not breached any of those principles. However, it may be a different matter in regard to the perpetrator. What if he has an objection to some aspects of how he was portrayed? Does he have the right to take legal action, even though that he's in prison? Here in Australia, there is no general right of privacy, nor a right prohibiting one person from telling a story about another person. But filmmakers have a legal obligation to abide by the principles as already stated. So here's my opinion about all of this. Now, I really think that the filmmakers knew what they were doing. I'm sure they made sure to cover all the legal aspects, so I don't believe that this film will have any content that will be subject to legal recourse. It's not a homemade film by amateurs. It's appeared at the Cannes Film Festival, so they know what they were doing. But of course, there is the moral obligation that Daniel's family have. And at the end of the day, it is a money-making venture, unless all of the money raised goes to the family, which of course is not going to happen. Unfortunately, Daniel's parents may see it as insensitive and disrespectful, but the film has done nothing illegal. And as for the perpetrator himself, he will be eligible for parole in 2031. My goodness, that's only nine years away. It just seems like it was yesterday that this whole thing happened. Um, he was abducted in 2003. So serving 20 years and then being eligible for parole seems like a very lenient sentence. But at the end of the day, sentences vary around the world. The same crime may have received a heavier sentence somewhere else, so it's just luck of the draw. Knowing what I know about what he did, to think that in nine years he could be out on the street is very frightening, also considering the fact that he lived not far from me. And he will probably be protected, so his whereabouts won't be revealed. 
I cannot imagine how Daniel's parents feel about this, but hopefully he has been in trouble while in prison, which may delay his release. But a murderer being released on their first attempt, I'm not sure how often that happens. So it remains to be seen what happens in the future. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Dearly Departed. The schoolgirl went missing. Where was she? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote, which certainly applies to Daniel's parents. When someone you love becomes a memory, that memory becomes a treasure. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.